fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We are the group that does that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn, talking like Batman for some reason. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Great to be here, Dan. I'm so excited about this. I can't believe I did not watch this movie any earlier in my life. Very exciting. I can't wait to talk about it. It's a great one. It really is an underrated horror movie for sure. Arguably one of Kevin Bacon's best performances. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We have to introduce our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser. Ben, where are you recording from this week? I'm out in the deserts of Nevada, and I'm doing some very important helping out with uh, some seismological research. There's some weird, weird stuff going on here out here in the desert. I've heard. So this is, I got to tell you guys, I, so I love this movie. I love Tremors. I think it's a lot of fun. I am not a big horror comedy fan, believe it or not. I love both of those genres separately and very rarely do movies pull them off successfully. And this one absolutely did like some tales from the crypt. I enjoy this one really nailed it. And I got to say, I think it's the strength of the script that brought some amazing stars to this movie, including Michael Gross, uh, country singer Reba McIntyre and Kevin Bacon. Uh, what did you think about this, Denon? I was just blown away. I mean, I have to admit, you guys mentioned it. I didn't think anything of it, didn't look at it. And when I saw Kevin Bacon was in this, I got so excited. It was a lot of fun, and I really loved him in it. I thought he did a great job. I think they all did. It was like you said, Dan. It was just kind of a fun movie. I do question whether it was a horror film, because a lot of people were alive at the end, but you just mentioned it. I hadn't really thought of this. Horror comedy, by definition, will have people alive at the end because comedies do have happy endings. It's true. Uh, it is very true. As a matter of fact, that's how comedy was originally defined. A tragedy, everyone died in a comedy. People lived. It didn't have to be funny. Let me see if I get this correct. I had apologized last time, but is this your favorite movie, Ben, or close? It, it's certainly up there. It's definitely one of my favorite monster movies. I even have trouble calling this a horror movie. I don't even think it's all that scary because it's so funny. But, I mean, there's these large <laughs> monsters trying to kill people, guys. Yeah, and when you listen to the soundtrack, they're definitely going for that uh, jump scare creepo uh, music style. So it's clear they're they're trying to make it a horror movie. But it's so fun, it's hard for it to be horror in that sense. Well, I do have to also point out one other key cinematic feature of this. It was very bright for the entire movie. Um, and I, I think of horror movies as being dark. I don't know. Maybe that's just biased of me, um, Dan. You're, you're the horror movie expert in the group. But it, it really is interesting, except for the scary monster... Um, there's so much of this that really does not match the horror level. Well, I will tell you that Shining is famously bright. Uh, that is another very that is a definitely a horror movie, and the entire movie is bright. There's very few uh, there's very few dark corners. You know, some of that that's some of the cheap stuff. That's amateur hour. The real masters of horror can do it without the darkness. Um, but I want to tell you, here's what makes this movie scary for me, guys. As you know, I'm terrified of sharks. What advantage do sharks have? Well, fish and other animals, unless they live on the ocean floor, kind of live in a 3D environment. They can they can get predated upon. Uh, is that am I using that correctly? Predated I think, upon. Sure. Did I nail it? Sure. Uh, they could be eaten. 
from any direction, from all sides, right? We as humans, normally things are above us, you know, but there's not much that can get us from below. Well, enter the graboids and that they can attack you from below. They live in the soil. They're kind of like these gigantic worm-like creatures that can live in the soil. So this kind of terrified me from that sort of degree because I think of them as almost like land sharks in a way. I'm with you on that, Dan. And I do think I my my terror is snakes. Mm. Um, I don't know if we've discussed that on the show before, but yeah, snakes terrify me to no end. I don't know why. I think your hat gave that away. You know the uh... yes, exactly. The hat does <laughs> give that away. Yeah. And so to have snakes attached to an even bigger snake, uh, that was just a scary idea. Um, <laughs> that 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 just yeah. goes over the top for me. Yeah, it's like Sharknado for me, right? Just yeah. this overload. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what did you think about that, Ben? Uh, you know, well. I, I like snakes and most reptiles, so they don't, they don't really scare me at all. Maybe that's why this movie doesn't really scare me that much, is that the, uh, the things they're trying to scare us with are animals I kind of like. I could see you having a graboid. Are you working on having... Do you have a graboid? I mean, you are out there in the field. Uh, a very small one. You know, it takes a while for them to grow up. All right. Well, don't get attached in case we have to put it down. I don't want it to take you out. Uh, now, one of the key things in this entire movie, I believe is sound. You know, in Phantasm, frequency was a big thing. Similar here, we got sound. And and I want to talk about sound through several different medium. So let's talk about how they kind of work. We've got air, soil, and water, really, are the things I want to talk about. So let's go physics first. Denon, tell me about the difference here. Well, the biggest difference between sound and what we would call a fluid, air or water, and in the ground, a solid, is that you get different modes of sound. When you're in a liquid, sound can only be what we call longitudinal or a pressure wave, which is the air going back and forth. That's what happens when we talk, that's sound waves. In the ground, particularly if you're an earthquake uh, aficionado, you realize that there are two types of waves in the ground. You can actually get transverse waves. This is the classic wave in a, a string, a guitar string or something, where the string vibrates perpendicular to the direction the wave is moving. So you either have the vibration in the direction of motion or perpendicular. So solid matter is actually different than liquids. Though the loose soil is kind of an interesting in-between state that we can go into more detail as we go into this. There's a, some fascinating stuff, I think, when you talk about the loose soil that's happening here. Well, I got to tell you, I'm super impressed that you're able to use a guitar string to both explain a quantum portal to another world and mutant worms. So you got uh, the physics well, thumbs up on that. Well, you know, when it works, Dan, you stick with it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, man. If you can blow that 100-mile-an-hour fastball, keep throwing it. It works. I love it. Um, so let's talk about... So that's basically how the physics of all this stuff. So let's talk about the technology here. So, Ben, where have we as human beings utilized technology in each one of these mediums? Yeah, so what's really interesting is... I, I think the most important thing is... The difference in the travel of the speed of sound uh, in those different mediums. Sound moves most slowly in the air and is much faster in the water or and depending on the solid, sometimes it'd be faster than water and sometimes slower uh, in, in loose soil, as Denon alluded to, which is kind of sort of liquid, kind of sort of solid. Um, it's hard to say, but certainly the rocks they're on would transmit the sounds very quickly and very well. So it, it's really interesting to to think about how that works. Now, in terms of what technology we've used, uh, I think we see it perfectly in the movie, which is that the uh, the student who's in the valley for the summer 
she is doing seismology research uh, on the area. And sound is one of the most important things we use in studying earthquakes and the, and the earth itself. Like, how do the tectonics work? How do we, uh, how do we predict earthquakes? How do we give early warning of earthquakes? Yeah, and, and another thing, uh, two other examples, a parabolic microphone is something we use for the air. You know, use that a lot on the sports games or, you know, private eyes use that to listen in on conversations. And submarines use a lot of sound through the water technology, which is really interesting. And I want to mention one other quick thing here. You mentioned loose soil. Loose soil is very similar to sand, which is kind of like the, you know, the two-faced other side of the coin to foam, which you're really into, Denon. Oh, definitely. What I like about that is it does, there are, sound can travel through the seemingly solid, sand is seemingly seemingly solid, um, but it acts as a liquid. So there are a lot of kind of funky things going on here. And I think loose soil could almost be kind of categorized as sand, right? Oh, definitely. And it just depends on how loose it is. And that's an interesting feature in this. And the scientist, she even alludes to the fact of the nature of the soil that they're moving through is a particular type of soil out in the desert there. I think one of the things that's really important in this movie is the different ways these creatures interact with sound. And it's unclear to me how they're using sound, whether they're just passively detecting it or whether they are kind of like bats or dolphins and actually emitting sound to use it to detect things. There's reasons we're going to, I think they are very clearly only passively detecting sound. They're not actually emitting sound and measuring reflections. And I have some theories as to why that's true. We can get into as we go farther into the show. Well, I think that's a great point. Let me quickly talk about a couple of biological creatures, also known as animals, that use <laughs> sound wave, that have used, that are able to use this and, and kind of capitalize on these these physical properties. You mentioned bats, echolocation. I didn't think of dolphins. They do it as well, and this is essentially emitting your own high pitched frequency that you then it rebounds off of the environment, and your ears are able to determine how close you are to those you know those objects. Bats use this to locate things as small as mosquitoes, which is incredible. There's this a gentleman named Daniel Kish, who they call the Batman. So he's he's been blind as a baby. I don't think he was born blind, but he was born he was he became blind very early on. And he was able to learn how to echolocate. So there's this is human echolocation, and he trains other people on how to use this. I think that that's very important as we move on. Um, sharks, I mentioned sharks. They're able to detect low, uneven sounds, very low frequencies like the struggling of a fish, and they use they can detect. They don't really hear in so much that same way as human beings kind of turn it into, into sound, but they can detect the movement, which is really what we're talking about. And I'm guessing that graboids are similar to sharks, and that they're more attuned to these strange rhythmic sounds like human or animal walking. In the movie, they're kind of just attracted to sound in general. And as a matter of fact, extremely loud and intense vibrations overload their senses. But I think they're more on the lines of sharks here. Uh, but Denon, I want to hear your theory on this. So there's a clear scene where I realize that these things are probably not admitting sound. Um, and it raises a lot of other questions for me. But early in the movie, they're running away from one of these and they try to jump across, you know, a cement gully. Um, they don't quite make it. Um, the gravoid follows them, hits the wall of the cement gully, and basically kills itself. Mm. Um, now, any creature admitting sound and detecting the rebound would know the cement is coming and not make this mistake. So I really feel that these creatures are detecting the sound passively like the shark and not admitting sound and navigating, which does raise the question of how they generically navigate through gravel 
um, uh, sort of an everyday kind of just moving around. But I, I really feel there's another one other option here is um, they definitely commented that the last one they fought was the smartest of them. So it could be that this first one was just the dumbest of them and, and just ran into the cement out of idiocy and not inability to detect it. But I really think there's no evidence to me at any point that they're admitting sound and feeling the vibrations back. Um, that's just where I'm at with this. I think that's a great example, and I was actually surprised that since they make a point to say that these things existed in this extremely isolated area of the desert, that they wouldn't know their own environment. That was actually surprising to me that they were able to kind of, all the ways that they destroyed these things, I thought they would have, especially because they point out how smart these things have become. That was kind of shocking to me. Um, I don't know. What did you think about that, Ben? Well, I think what's interesting is, while they clearly would be familiar with uh, their environment, I, I feel like they must be from like the next valley over or something that's completely unoccupied because <laughs> yeah. clearly people couldn't have been here for decades and not run into these things. So somehow they must have like found their way through the pass, the little road pass and found and are now in this new valley with this new environment that they're probably not familiar with. Mm. And so that's why they're making these dumb mistakes like riding into a goalie or or something similar. That makes a lot. Actually, I think that that's probably a good example because there are lots of unoccupied areas uh, of the rural. I think it's Nevada, right? Nevada, Nevada desert. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's plenty of places where these things could have evolved and, and kind of swarmed for whatever reason. Uh, I want to mention that they don't have any eyes. They're kind of like a cave dweller, which allows these other heightened senses. Um, the, you know, the, the evolution of these other senses, I think, is very important. So let's talk about their movement. Right. So this is there's a term for this. It's called bioturbation. I believe I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, I imagine, since I pronounce everything incorrectly. <laughs> but I believe it's bioturbation. And that is the technical term for an animal reworking the soil, be it burrowing, ingestion, or defecation. And I think that's what's going on here. The badger is the fastest digging animal, uh, although he is a mammal with arms. I think this is more like a mutant worm. Uh, I don't know how the physics of that holds up. So I don't know what you think, Denon. I definitely think it's like a worm, even though I don't have a deep understanding of worm mechanics. I think they're definitely sucking in soil, digging it up, and sending it out their tail end. This is probably why they stink so much. Something's happening in that process as they process the soil and generate the smell. Now, the, the woman, the scientist whose name I just momentarily forgot, talks about them kind of grabbing and moving through the soil. So maybe that's what adds the speed to what they're doing. They're using this dual locomotive method. Um, so the chewing up makes it really loose in front of them. They're grabbing the sides and sliding through. That may, that may explain both speed and how they do it under, underground. That is really interesting because the speed, I think, is the trick. I was very surprised to learn that worms eat their weight in dirt every day, which means that they're actually eating their way through the ground. Now, worms can sense light, which is important, so they can stay away from the surface. Now, I thought this was really interesting. If you remember, on that graboid that gets smashed against that concrete barrier, on the bottom, it has this little protuberance uh, that, that actually has a technical term. It's called setae. And those are, these are on actual worms. They're on the bottom of a worm to help it move through soil and to grip when a bird is trying to grab them. But this propulsion idea is very interesting where, you know, you're kind of talking about it eating the, the dirt and shooting it out the backside. Uh, ben, is this is this logical? I mean, that's certainly how worms work. <laughs> like they, they eat the dirt and they decomp they um, 
what while they're eating the dirt, they're uh, they're consuming the organic matter in the dirt that they that they eat. So like dead leaves, dead dead wood, things like that, and digesting it and making worm casings, which is what the whole point of worms mm. is. That's true. <laughs> so, but what's interesting is how much both how much faster the graboids are at this, and also how much uh, volume they must be taking up. What's really interesting, they're a little inconsistent in the film because sometimes you see like little mounds when they're when they're running around and sometimes there isn't that that reaction. Like when it eats when it gets stabbed with the jackhammer by the road crew, it's not disturbing the road surface at all. Whereas when it's eating the Fred's uh, sheep, uh, you do see the, the little a little mound where it's going. But I think the important point is that they are very fast. They're. They go, they're going at something like 1,400 times faster than a regular earthworm goes. <laughs> That's pretty quick. I, I do want to mention that that worms, you know, they you mentioned that they, they're very important to the soil. It is true they're sometimes called the intestines of the earth, and that's called vermiculture. This is the idea of, of harvesting worms and using them to increase soil. It's possible that that's what these graboids were there for. Uh, what do you think about these little side arms pushing it through? Could you get that level of speed if we could kind of make the leap that these were evolutionarily advanced sete? I actually think the sete might be for something else because I think to get the speed they need, they actually would probably need to make use of the ingestion and expulsion of the matter through them. Uh, having those those little uh, sete move fast enough to get you up to like a human running speed, which seems to be about how fast they go, I think that would be pretty difficult. I think it's more likely that you know, when we see it come out of the earth, there's huge holes in the side of its mouth. So my thinking is, as it's as it's going through the earth, it's it's ingesting the earth, and then with very very powerful muscles, it's pushing that earth through it and using that as propulsion through the ground. I mean, that is incredible. One of the other traits of these things, which does kind of add credence to that theory, is their hard mouth and jaw. We see that it is at least it is bulletproof, if not. Well, at least bullet resistant. I think we can agree on that because a, an elephant gun is required to take one down. And I looked up an elephant gun and those the, the size of the bullet on that is four bore, which I had no idea what that meant. But that's about a .955 caliber or a five gauge slug. Uh, that's pretty big and that's a lot of force to take it down. Does that do anything for us? I think so, Dan, but it also raises another question. I have some concerns about uh, the consistency of the ability of these things to withstand damage because there's at least four examples that made me wonder. First of all, one of them runs into the cement wall on the side of the gully and kills itself in the process. Now, I guess that probably is the thickest cement wall in the film that it hit, so maybe I'll believe that. However, if I am a standard survivalist, the cement wall on my house basement is probably at least as good, if not more reinforced, than the gully wall. And 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 the gravoid goes right through that with no pain. So I was a little concerned about, you know, are are they different aged? Are they different, you know, consistency, whatever. But having survived that, that is the one that resists the bullets quite well until you get the elephant gun. But then I was really mystified by one gets a jackhammer through it and is able to run along <laughs> with the jackhammer um, presumably stuck in, I guess, a non-vital organ. Yeah. 
Um, that's what I was trying to, but a lot of blood was coming out. So I'm, 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 you know, the material properties of these are clearly highly varied. There's a lot of variation in their ability to resist um, damage. Well, let me offer this up. What it, did he did he smash through the wall, or did he eat through the wall in the survivalist basement? Now, now, Dan, that's a very good point. We really don't know. I felt like he smashed through. That was my visual impression. But you're right; it could have been eating. But we didn't see any real example of them eating solid hard rock. Because if they could eat rock, I don't think the people would have survived standing on the rock. So again, mm. I'm thinking he hit it. But that's that's just where I'm leaning. Well, I think one point there also is we saw with the goalie, the goalie cement was clearly steel reinforced, whereas it didn't look like there was any rebar in the concrete blocks that in the basement. So it's also possible that it's the the steel that was the problem, not the concrete. Uh, very good point, Ben. Very good point. Yeah, I think that I, I'm going with them smashing through it in the in the the basement, and I think. But this, this what this does is it gives us a really good idea of the capability of the graboid to go through solid matter because the rocks that they're standing on are very thick, and they also make a point that they're trying to get to the mountains so the graboids can't get them. But concrete can be can be you know right. it's smashable from a graboid standpoint. I think. I think we definitely established that in the movie. And and I like Ben's comment. It may be the rebar um, that was the gully thing. And I'm a little disappointed that our survivalists didn't have a rebar reinforced um, basement. I'm just, yeah. you know. That's the most shocking part of the movie, I would argue. Yeah. yeah. We also do have to wonder if the one that broke into the basement hit the wall at 15 miles an hour or so like the... <laughs> The goalie one yeah. did. Yeah, that is very true. Now, one of the things we see in that same scene is also very important to the graboids, and that is these mouths within a mouth. They have tentacles that are almost, they look almost like the Audrey 2, right? Like they're these little, um, they're eyeless mouths that come off on these big slug-like tongues. This is kind of interesting because they have incredible strength. They seem to be self-brained like an octopus. You know, octopus has nine brains. Um, what did you guys think about this? I really liked it. And as I said, that was the creepiest part for me because I, I honestly didn't know what was happening. And at the beginning of the movie, when you see these snake things, I'm like, I don't know. These guys had described these really big gravoid thingies. I, what are these little things? I'm like, where's the big one? And then when the big one showed up, you know, I was like, oh, I get it now. Um, so I, I think this is a fascinating evolution. And I really, I really appreciated that detail. Well, I would say I think that that's the grab part of graboid, if I'm correct. I mean, that's what really grabs things. Um, as our resident Tremors expert, is that right, Ben? Uh, that makes sense. And it, I think, yeah. And also that name came before they really saw the full-size worm as well. Hmm. So I, I I think clearly the snakes are the graboids, and they didn't even know about the worms yet <laughs> when, they, when they named them. Yeah. But... What's also interesting is I think they are independent. And I, I think actually they may even be the only consciousness in the Graboid. And that the rest of the Graboid is just some weird vessel for the snake things. Oh, that's interesting. So then do you think that the, each tentacle, you know, like an octopus, each each arm has its own little brain neural cluster to facilitate movement, but they can all work together. Do you think that each one of those little tongues has its own brain? Absolutely. I mean, they seemed very independently intelligent when they're, you know, when when you see all three of them out and searching around for for victims, they seem to all have their own kind of intelligence in that in that operation. Yeah, I agree. It was definitely clear in the scene when Kevin Bacon is trying to get to the vehicle 
um, and he stuck there for a moment. They were definitely sniffing him out um, and, and clearly had uh, both sensory ec- experiences and a level of hunter intelligence behind them. Well, what's interesting about that is an octopus arm, they do have sensors. They've got photoreceptors and taste sensors. So that kind of tracks that there might be some, some octopus DNA in the graboid as it opens its mouth and then can kind of sense its environment. I think that there might be something there. And as, as longtime viewers of the show know, Dan, the octopus is one of your favorite animals. So it makes a lot of sense here um, that, that an advanced highly intelligent monster like the Gravoid is related to the highly intelligent advanced octopus. Well, I'm going to do something that you guys were not capable of doing or not willing to do, and I'm going to commit to the octopus being my favorite animal. You heard it here first. <laughs> Quote me on that, gentlemen. Uh, and what is, The last thing I want to mention here is what's cool about this is I think the relative isolation could I, I think that it that it's very important to note that there are convergent evolutions, you know, where where animals can develop and evolve similar traits to animals across the world as they kind of figure out their environment. So I love the fact that they point out that these graboids are in their own world and could evolve separately. That's probably my favorite part of this movie, to be honest with you. I love that, Dan. I think that that's a great, com- both your commitment to the octopus yeah. and your explanation of convergent evolution. <laughs> I think, yeah. And much like the octopus, I think that their propulsion system actually reminds me a lot about of cephalopods and octopuses, where they're taking in the media which with which they travel in, where octopuses suck in water and then blow it out their siphon to propel themselves. The graboids suck in earth and blow it out their siphons to move around. And I love, I think that's a great new phrase. Hey, blow it out your siphon. I'm going to use that one from now on. That's a good one. Uh, so we, I think we've kind of nailed graboids here, um, as we always do. It's time for the errors, additions, and omissions section. Things we want to talk about, but we're not going to, but we often do anyway. Denon, did you have anything on Tremors that we didn't talk about? I, I have two things, Dan, and I've never been able to do this. I'm going back to back. In our last episode, the regular viewers know I made a reference to Dune. These worms remind me of the worms from Dune um, and the sandworms, except, you know, the little octopi coming out um, the tentacles is a little different, but the basic idea is the same. Those also responded to vibrations. Um, and I did confirm Dune's, it, Dune is a 60s novel, so we're, we're safe on the order of operation here. Um, the, other, the other two things, quick, you got to love a movie where the core basis is a woman scientist taking the lead and knowing exactly how many gravoids are out there based on the seismic traces. That is actually very good science um, and could be triangulated like that. However, she makes a minor error. I have a minor point of contention when she calls the rock a perfect sound conductor. That's a weird phrase to use. I would argue crystals are the most perfect conductors of sound because of their periodic nature. And so I have a little trouble with the rock being amorphous. However, I thought she was did an excellent job, and for a grad student, knocked it out of the park. Well, I noticed a couple things there, Denon. I want to point out that is the second episode in a row where you mentioned used a Dune reference, and the second episode in a row where you used a guitar string as a reference. So either you've gotten super lazy on me or brilliantly efficient, and I don't know which one it is yet. Well, we'll find out in our next episode. <laughs> We sure will. Can he make it a trifecta, the old three-peat? Uh, ben, did you have anything on this episode? Yeah, I've got two things. One is the the seismometer related to the aforementioned grad, uh, grad student. 
we see that needle going crazy. So I'm wondering, is that like an incredibly sensitive seismometer or or should she be feeling an earthquake? That's a really good <laughs> like, point. I wonder that myself. You know, I, I, I'm not sure about that one. Um, the other thing, which I think lends more credence to my the worms, the, the big worm is a vessel for the small worms, is in the future movies when we see what the graboids uh, come into and like multiple creatures basically come out of them, I think that they come from the consciousness of each of these worm tongue things. Well, I will tell you that I think of grab in the graboid world in 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 graboid um, taxonomy, I think that is the biggest breakthrough and I think 20 years is that the graboid is a vessel for the tongues. I think that that's brilliant and and I think that you're really taking strides in that field, arguably a field leader. Um, I, I, I'm going to pile on Rhonda as well. I feel bad. We all are nailing Rhonda. She's the seismologist and she's just a grad student but hey, if you're going to talk like you know things, you got to be worried about getting called out. Trust me, I do it all the time and everyone calls me out. I'm not knowing what I'm talking about but Rhonda is a seismologist who's telling people about the biological history of the heretofore unheard of graboid. So I don't know what she's talking about. Stay in your own lane, Rhonda. You're not, you're not a, you're not a biologist. You're a seismologist and she's working. She's going to be on a team studying the creatures at the end of the movie. So I, I don't know what's going on there. I think their, their grasp of science is a little loose. There's a pogo stick in this. I'm surprised Denon, you didn't mention the pogo stick. I, I left that for you, Dan. <laughs> I know, you know, we've seen, we've talked about it on Wiley. Coyote. I know you've had personal experiences with pogo sticks. I loved this. Um, there's one little thing in here. Inside of Perfection, there's a talcum mine. I've never even heard of a talcum mine. I love that that, that must be the basis of the town, of this boom town, which only has seven people still living in it, which is very weird. Um, Kevin Bacon's double in this movie has the worst wig you've ever seen. I really think you guys should go back and watch when they're jumping from rock to rock uh, with the pole vaulting. Uh, just how bad it really is and so for at some point in this movie they have a cannon and someone brings out a cannon fuse to blow off the cannon now i know michael gross is a survivalist with a whole collection of guns but where in the world can you buy cannon fuse nowadays that is so <laughs> crazy to me uh but what do i know if we've missed anything or if you think that we have if there's another movie or you have a suggestion for this show you can find us on twitter at f triple g BT pod on Facebook at F triple G BT, but you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just reverse my name at Denon Michael. And then on Facebook, you stick in a prof at prof Denon Michael. Ben, if people want to talk to you, if we've got other people who are very curious in pursuing a career in graboid history, where can people find you? So you can reach me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. This has been a fun one, guys. I'm really enjoying this trip down memory lane, although I realize that the world is very dangerous. Graboids may, in fact, to be out there, but I think we've equipped you with enough knowledge to navigate that subterranean world of, of, of crazy monsters, but you got to be careful with this information. You want to be a superhero, not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn.
The fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, if you like this show, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? The good news is we're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you're not already on those platforms, don't worry. We've made it very easy for you. Go to our website, F triple gbt.com that's f triple gbt.com where you will find links to everything you're looking for all the subscribe buttons at the bottom of the page links to our social media are right there and if you go to the top of the page you'll see a little button that says episodes click on that and go to your favorite episode there you can find the show in its entirety. You can find the links that we talked about, the in real life examples that we brought to you, including videos. And of course, we've got each episode has its own YouTube video. You can watch it there if you prefer. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.